Welcome to Budo, the Way of the Warrior podcast. This podcast is a collection of historical and philosophical references, contemplations, lectures, and exchanges with David M. Valadez, his students, and guests. Podcasts are recorded on the mat at the Sension Center in Southern California and in studio. These podcasts are provided to cultivate the warrior on the way and to add light to their path. Okay, so the question is, why introduce form number five of the Omori Ryu Iaido uh, when we're still far from perfecting forms one through four? Um, obviously, we don't want that museum death, so we're not, we are not heirs to Omori Ryu. Uh, we don't have that interest. It's not a doctrine for us. It's not an artifact that we're meant to reproduce. And by a certain logic, really, you don't even need forms two, three, and four because we are using the forms in their utility uh, toward the ultimate ends of Budo and Aikido. So it's about a releasing of self, an alignment with the truth of, del of the delusion of self, right? So it has more this kind of ritualistic, but ritual in the old sense of the word, not ritual in the dead sense of the word. Ritual in the Confucian sense of the word, there's an as-if component to it, and we are there to embody it. But if you go back to the Buddhist truths, um, at least by post-Nagarjuna standards. So it, it is important to not be attached to form, but in some ways a rebellion against form or a rejection of form is also an attachment to form. So it's often said you need to know how to go, you need to know how to be free of forms, but you need to know how to come. You need to know how to find your freedom within the midst of the form. Zazen, in essence, is exactly that. It's a ritual posture that is adopted that, from the subjective point of view, is quite constraining. No movement, no variation, no sound. And until you understand the deeper aspects of the practice, it does feel like a prison of sorts. And it's one reason why you have, um, you know, why, why we're in the age of Mapo. Mapo is a, is a philosophy of time where 
the Buddha supposedly said, or it was understood by the practitioners ages ago, that at a certain point, the teaching would degenerate to a, to a, a, uh, a level where it's no longer viable. It's one reason why you have uh, various schools of Buddhism, such as Pure Land Buddhism, uh, where they felt we, we already are in an age of mapo, and it's impossible to reach awakening now because the teaching has degenerated to the point where it's no longer viable. It can't deliver what it was supposed to be, what it's supposed to deliver. And as a result, the best you could do is develop and cultivate within yourself a kind of faith and a kind of allegiance and servitude to a bodhisattva from another era and another reality uh, wherein through that faith and devotion you could be born into that reality and from there the teaching is no longer de degenerated and you could reach awakening or buddhahood but and that sounds quite fantastical but if you look at what mapo is um you, you will see that there is a natural degeneration to all things. And because you're dealing with that principle of concentric truth, if I see within myself that I go from a child where my joints, let's just talk about joints, my joints are quite supple, strong, flexible, but as I age, they become less so. There's a degeneration that's, that's happening physiologically to me. And because of the principle of concentric truth, we know that that happens then at macro levels, not just the individual micro levels. So a teaching would do the same thing. No matter how divine or unique or sacred or special, it has its own era. So back to the Zazen posture, it's quite common today where uh, Zazen is understood more as a relaxation technique or even a meditation technique, meditation in, the, in more of a, a Judeo-Christian sense of the word, where you are there to actually um, contemplate on things, meditate on things. It's a poor translation for the word Zazen, which just means seated Zen, and that does not mean uh, I'm going to sit down and contemplate on things. So a lot of people don't translate Zen or Zazen, but more and more you have people talking about meditation. And that this is a corruption of the teaching, and as a result, you start to see other things where you're Ritual posturing is often quite open for interpretation or, or uh, debate. So you don't have to sit in a particular way. You can sit however you want, right? You can uh, have a seiza bench. Uh, you could have three or four cushions and f five mats. Um, if you want, you can have a chair. If you want, you can lay down this kind of thing. And it gives the impression that uh, you can do whatever you want and there is no then 
form in which to find this later or this secondary truth of can you find your freedom within the form? I imagine those postures would be fine if the, if the rule then applied. Sit on the bench, now don't move and be quiet. But you're, you tend not to see that. Movement's okay, sound is okay. Um, and it, when the bench becomes a problem, go ahead and change into this. Now go ahead and lay down. Oh, change from, the, from reclining to the bench to a chair. And now we are not learning how to come, right? We, we, we're just philosophizing how to go. But we're fooling ourselves. So it's no different in your Iaido form. You can, on the one hand, make a big deal out of the form without knowing it. You, you, and you do that by saying, why one more? Because the question in return of insight is, why not? It doesn't matter, right? It doesn't matter whether we have one form. And because it doesn't matter whether, because we only have one form, then it should not matter when we have 12 forms. There are things to work on. Uh, what are those things? The same thing. The same thing in Shohato as in, in Yoshintai. Same, same exact thing. Some interesting things come up where you can see that, ah, yes, there is a difference between knowing how to come and go and only knowing how to go. For example, Shohato seems to spill in a lot when you learn in Yoshintai, right? You like... Uh, you, you go right into shohato. You don't go into the next step because the draw is the same, right? Uh, so what's going on there? Well, you have attached mind. The form has actually captured you. You don't have presence. You don't have awareness outside of self-attachment. And so you become, in a way, habitual. You become unconscious. And you cannot learn that or see that about yourself if you only do shohato. So that, that's a value, I think, in my opinion. Um, but each time I'm doing whichever form we're working on, it, it, it kind of has great value, but in a universal sense. And in that universal sense, it loses its individual value. And I think that's the way to work on these forms. Um, so they're all, like all things, ways of seeing ourselves. So the same thing, like um, we can make our Budo centered on our technique, on our waza. But you'll get way more out of it if it's not restricted to your waza. Uh, and you will find that it's much easier to have a so-called Budo that is restricted to the waza than a Budo that's actually a kind of uh, overall asceticism, right? Where your, your daily life and all components of your daily life will follow the teachings of Budo and will be used as the same kind of windows into yourself the way that Ikkyo or Edimi Nage or Kokyuho would be. Um, if you go past the urge, even when it appears noble, so if I go, wow, I, I really want my Aikido Waza 
to be central, right? Which is, of course, better than someone who has no, no application of self in ikkyo, nikkyo, sankyo. They're just out here exercising. Um, but if you look at this apparent or, or at surface level noble way of training, you actually see that it's hiding a lot of lack of, of virtue, let's say, for example, in courage or in commitment, because even though it's easier to exercise than to make your waza these kind of windows into yourself, by comparison, it is much easier to make your waza windows into yourself and leave the entirety of the rest of your life outside of that paradigm, right? So I, I understand, I, I know the sentiment you feel like, oh, another form, but it's just, I know how to come, I know how to go. It's really no big deal. It's just one more opportunity to apply myself according to the, the tenets of Buddha practice, just like another friend or another relationship. We don't want to go, wow, I have enough problems with this one friendship. I'm not going to get another friendship because it's too, or I haven't mastered relationships yet. Go ahead, live your life and apply the teachings and the practice there is my recommendation. Okay. Any other questions or observations from the class or the sit or even the last few podcasts or videos that we've had? They've been uh, quite, I, w- I want to say, uh, potent. Okay, uh, a lot of stuff's coming out on the on the mats where we've been hiding or holding on to a lot of stuff, and now, oh wow, I should be able to do that. I thought I was doing that, but I'm actually not doing that. Or just sentiments. This is not uh, directly related to those things, uh, but I did uh, train with Leah uh, over the break, and we just work out, and then uh, she wanted to roll. I was like, sure, let's let's roll, that's fine with me. And uh, I was just so struck by her progress and um, the... <clears throat> just the uh, the hours that she's put in with you uh, really I don't know what it was because I, I think now reflecting on it, I can see it in other things she's said and done but it really uh, was a very physical obvious manifestation of that uh, progress and I was really um, I really had to pause and look at my own uh, Newaza training and just you know face the truth of just the hours and lack thereof um, as far as where I am. Yeah, um, let's go back to this truth we've been playing with lately that practice does not make perfect, practice makes permanent, okay? So you come in, you're a new student, you come into the dojo and you don't know anything. You might not even be in shape. 
you might not be physiologically capable. You're, you're not flexible. Um, you don't have good balance. You don't have good eye-hand coordination, right? Maybe even psychologically, you're not capable of training at what we would call a kind of entry-level uh, viable budo. Uh, meaning uh, you're too emotionally fragile. There's so much self-attachment in you and a victim mentality that the idea that you are responsible as the experiencer of your world is just beyond you. We, we just can't do it. So that's why we have all the extra stuff, all the, the body conditioning classes, the podcasts, the videos, the talks, Right, was, we're trying to get people ready to be in there. Um, what does your Aikido look like at that level? There's no way it can be right. I mean, by Aikido here, we mean your Aikido wasn't. Let's just take Ikkyo. There's just no way it can function. Um, even at an external physiological level, you, you step with your right foot when it's your left foot, or you step with your front foot when it's your back foot, right? Um, if you go into a tactical level, uh, again, you're clashing. You're, you're not even doing the art. You're not harmonizing yin and yang, right? And you could go deeper. Um, you could go to the methodological level. Where you have no internal aspects to your form whatsoever, right? And you're going to practice that over and over and over because that is who you are. So if we get good at what we do most, then that is what you're going to get good at. If every time you're doing your techniques, you are simply repeating a lack of internal aspects a clashing, a disharmony between yin and yang, the wrong foot, the wrong angle, uh, you have no ground path, you are emotionally fragile, so there's a lot of anxiety in you, you're holding your breath, there's a, there's a mindset of contesting and a mindset of a fear of losing, and that's what you do. And the years go by, that's not going to get better. There's no catalyst in there to cause a deviation from that path. Do, do you we all assume there is. We, we're just not thinking about it deeply enough. We all assume that as you repeat this over and over, which is, it is a physical manifestation of who you are. That's what that version of Ikkyo is. So you can only do who you are can only be who you are. So your ikkyo can only be who you are. Well, that's who you are, and that's what you're reinforcing with every rep, and it keeps going and going and going. And so the decades go by, and what counts as improvement isn't really improvement. It tends to uh, be a product of maybe politics, or maybe social pressure, like, well, I'm senpai, right? I can now legitimately resist your technique, which is I can now uh, 
uh, utilize my lack of skill as uke in a legitimate way. That's total bullshit, right? Or, you know, I'm the teacher or I'm teaching in there and the uke, right, is going to go with you because that's your training culture. And so the lack of skill is never there. There was no progress. There was no transformation. There was no change. It's the same terrible uh, ikkyo every time. And the more you practice it, the better you are, not the better you are, the better you are at that ikkyo. Do, do you guys understand that? So, again, this Budo pedagogy, so Budo's theory of teaching is Confucian-based, right? They're not idiots. We're not smarter than them, and, you know, it, it waited for us to figure out how people learn things. That, that problem was well known centuries ago. And they needed a catalyst, like everyone needs a catalyst. And the catalyst that they chose is your master, your mentor. The mentor is that energy that kind of tweaks things so that little, so to speak, corruptions of yourself, mutations of yourself, start to come to the surface, do you see? Today, it's more appreciated that I don't really have a mentor, I don't really have a master, and you have this sense that there's some virtue in developing your own individual art, but the assumption there is that you were capable of actually uh, manifesting some sense of quality in your art. That's a huge assumption. So I've seen you know, high-ranking practitioners who will, will thank their teacher for actually not being a teacher. They'll, well, well, the good part about them is they let you develop your own Aikido, as if body mechanics, physics, and all these things are just so universal that infinite variation is actually possible, that there's not better ways biomechanically of moving than other ways, right? It's just not true. So, and, and it, it pretends that there's a way that you could be that would actually uh, not be you, right? You, you will never lose entirely your individuality and uh, you, no one can take that away from you. That's a false problem, right? What's really going on there is the resistance to self-transformation, the kind of homeostatic energy to remain unchanged. That's just a universal energy and by the principle of concentric truth is operating within us too. And so we try to give a noble reason to why we should not practice self-displacement in the face of another human being. So we, we call that humility. Humility is almost like a bad word. People will wonder, how can you do anything as a humble person? But they don't understand the practicality of humility, and it doesn't mean that. 
It's a matter of getting out of your own way. And in this case, in the mentor-disciple relationship or the mentor-disciple technology, it is to allow for that catalyst to generate these mutations in ourselves. So that I, that's, what you're, that's what you're seeing in, in Leah. How does, it, how does it come about? It's very easily to understand. Exposure. Exposure, contact, and proximity. So if you train at a level where you don't have uh, exposure to the catalyst or proximity to the catalyst, basically you're going to stay exactly how you are. That's, that's what happens. And a lot of people do that because for a lot of people, the homeostatic energy that resistance to self-transformation is just so potent. It generates so much fear, resistance, that they will train on the other side of the dojo. Not just literally, but you know, like they're on the other side of the mat from the teacher, but at all levels. They kind of just come in and work out and do their own thing. So that there's a dojo in the dojo. Well, technologically, that's removing your catalyst. And all you're going to do is get good at what you're practicing. And what you're practicing cannot be good because you started. Nobody walks into the dojo even ready to train, let alone training. So my advice always is, hey, we have the schedule. The squares are filled to let you know when I'm going to be there, uh, right? Why would we do that? <laughs> so because of this, because of this technology. And you would be way better off as a deshi uh, getting yourself near that catalyst so you can have more mutations. And so you would be better off, you know, four days at the gray square classes where your teacher trains than five or six or seven days with, or classes where your teacher is not training. Just as you are way better off to come to the class where your teacher is training with the understanding that there is a homeostatic energy that resists self-transformation and, and with an understanding of the technology of the mentor as catalyst. Because you can come to that class and be totally closed off, right? And you're not gonna get anywhere. So, um, yeah, get in. I, I know your schedule is changing uh, with school and work, but you, you really wanna try to do your best uh, to get in there and you'll, you'll see the same uh, results. We'll see the same thing. Okay. Yeah. Uh, does this tie in at all to uh, the comment you made at the end of yesterday's class about how uh, at a certain point um, the time that you've spent training can start to work against you? Yes. 
Yes, very much. So uh, what happened is one of the uh, younger Deshi has been here at the same uh, number of years that some of the other younger Deshi have been here. But we are not seeing the same results, right? Um, of course, right, there's the Bhagavad Gita caveat of not to be attached to the results, right? But there is a truth in self-observation that comes your way if you are looking. Am I seeing the effects that I want to see because of the laws of causation? If I'm not seeing those effects, I have different causes happening, do you see? And that can allow me to reflect upon what am I actually doing? What are the actual causes? Because a lot of people will train kind of unconsciously thinking, if I just come in through the door, I'm going to get this. But no, 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 because the truth of practice makes permanent. So if you have 10 years of non-catalyst training, yeah, you, you are good at what sucks. That's just the law. So what happens is um, you kind of get this, what we, this unwanted inertia. Do you see? So you do come all the time, and now there's 10 years, and now what are, what are you used to? You're used to no change. That's part of your homeostatic energy. You're used to that inertia. If you think of it as a river and it has a current, you're in a current of zero transformation. You're in a current of uh, causes that are not producing the results that you assume will be yours. In particular, those might be made of, uh, I only come three hours a week. And that's now what you're used to. And you've been doing it for 10 years. It is going to be very, very, very hard to reverse that inertial path. At 10 years in, three hours a week, and you want to now jump up to two hours every day, mm, oh man, that's going to be tough because we're only human and we have to battle that. If, you, um, if early on you come in there with the intention of meeting our bare minimum requirement, you're going to do two hours a week, right? But soon you realize, oh, that actually is a bare minimum requirement and you don't really get the results you want at the uh, bare minimum so early on, you start adjusting your life, do you see? And that now, that's your inertial current. And that's going to make that, because it requires a great energy, a secondary energy to change inertial paths. So you're going to use that homeostatic energy for your own benefit. You're going to go, hey, early on, I can't do to hours a week, I'm going to jump up to two hours a day. And now it's actually harder to get off of the two hours a day after 10 years. So that, that was my caveat there is there's so much inertia on this, this way of, uh, let's call it not adequate investment. 
in terms of the results you want, that it's, it's pretty much dooming because we're human and these energies are working on us. And that inertia um, is extremely difficult to reverse, extremely difficult. So I am, you know, I pointed out that you don't need to meet my recommendation of four to six hours a day to get way different results. Results that you would define as better because you do have the aspiration, you just don't have the mechanisms in place to achieve them. So, uh, you know, I pointed out the other team members who are doing, you know, at best two hours a day. They're not, they're not because they have uh, homework assignments or volunteer assignments or uh, finals and things like that. They're not really doing two hours a day, but still we see way better results, right? Um, and so I don't know, will, will, will that Deshi jump on it? I, it's very difficult. But for us, it's it's a truth that we have to address. What's our inertial path right now, right? And do we understand that we're, the greater our inertia is on the path we're on, the greater, the greater the energy we need to shift it if it's not doing what we want it to do, okay? That, that was what I was explaining that day. Kind of like when you practice your forms and you have that weird sword grip and you keep doing that over and over and over again, Right now, it's going, to take, it's going to take you way more energy to get rid of that than it's going to take you because you just started the forms. You can, if you correct it now, it will be no big deal. You're going to have to muster up some, uh, you know, God-level, you know, catastrophe energy where you stop doing that, right? Usually in those kind of things in com like in combat, if someone cuts your finger off or you break your finger because it's sticking out there and then you become that, that old salt that's telling the new guys, hey, don't stick your finger out like that because one time I did that and look at my finger now and you hold up this stub, right? Um, this reminds me of, of the latest arrest control training we did when we had this principle of don't, don't take out your handcuffs to control the suspect. Have control of the suspect, then take out your handcuffs. And we, people will raise their hand and you go, oh, that is a very good truth. And I had to learn that the hard way. I went to put handcuffs on this person before I had control of their arms and they moved and the swing arm of the handcuffs just, you know, shredded my forearm and I and then they show you the big scar and then and I never do that again right um whereas the older people that are used to it you can barely get them to stop doing it and they almost have to learn it the hard way right but for us as budoka we don't need to wait for those lessons because the practice is that mindfulness right I can observe what my finger is doing as I'm doing X, Y, Z kind of stuff. So we, we really want to have the motivation be a matter of our commitment to the way, to the practice, uh, and generate that level of self-investment 
and then you'll clean up these, these errors from my finger and my sword grip to there is a disparity between the results I say I want and the amount of hours that I'm actually committing, or there is a disparity between the skill set I want and my proximity to the mentor uh, catalyst. Do you, do you see that? Anything else? Okay, let's stop there. This concludes this episode of Budo, the Way of the Warrior podcast. For more information, please visit sentiencenter.com, S-E-N-S-H-I-N-C-E-N-T-E-R.com, or find us at Facebook at Sension Center and on our YouTube channel at Sension One. Thank you for listening.